Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's uh, a, a warm and uh, slightly overcast day today in Los Angeles. And what you're about to hear is uh, Class 5, Part 1, of a series of talks I gave in the spring of 07 at Loyola Marymount University. Uh, the title of the class was called The Buddhist Eightfold Path, A Way to Happiness. So this is Class 5, Part 1. So now we have two more path factors to talk about, and then we talk about how to take this home with us. Was that uh, what we're going to do? How are we going to bring this home with us and not just keep it here in the classroom? So we, what we've done is we've sort of covered um, six of the eight path factors. We've decided how to transform our consciousness. We've decided how to transform our speech and action through the five precepts, our consciousness through meditation, and we've succeeded. This is a, we're just going to pretend we've succeeded. And, and now the last two path factors turn out to be the wisdom path factors. And they are right view and right intention. After transforming your consciousness through all the practices we've talked about over these weeks, your view now is understanding through personal experience the Four Noble Truths at a mundane level, at a relative level, and an ultimate level. You do not have skeptical doubt. You do not question. You know for sure that this life is ultimately unsatisfactory. You have investigated. You have tested it. It's proven to be true at a relative and ultimate level. You also have come to the conclusion that the reason for this unsatisfactoriness is desire, craving, thirst, selfishness. You now look at the third truth, which is the end of suffering. You know for sure. You're getting really close. You're almost there. You know for sure that there is an end to suffering. And the label we give that is nirvana. And you look at the Eightfold Path, you look at those path factors, and you see that path, in fact, will lead you to the end of your suffering. You no longer have faith that it is true. You now have confidence. It has been proven true to you because of your practice. That is so cool. That's, that is impossible to talk you out of. You can be confronted, as we talked about earlier, by people proselytizing their particular religious perspective, and you can listen to them with great compassion and wisdom, and maybe even agree with them, and say to them, you're absolutely right. I think being a Mormon is the best religion for Mormons. Wow. Okay. And you can live with them and be with them and, and not have to be one of them. Because you now see how all things are connected. 
right intention occurs because of our meditation practice. We end up having the intention of generosity. Everything we speak and do will be based and rooted in an intention of generosity. You have an intention of compassion. Everything you think and do is rooted in that compassion that's come to, to be how you live your life now in a kind and sensitive way. And finally, loving kindness. You always have this sort of love and kindness aspect behind everything you say and everything you do. And those six path factors that you've been practicing and ruminating over and reflecting on have led you to this point in your practice where you can't think a thought of lust or greed or hatred and delusion because you can't think of a thought like that. You can't speak in that way or act in that way anymore either. So you wouldn't make a good soldier. You wouldn't make a good CEO. You wouldn't make a good salesman. You're going to have to find something that allows you to be the way you are and still make a living. Maybe a monk. <laughs> or none. <laughs> so your, your future jobs are going to be limited, you know. But that's okay. Your life has become a life of simplicity. Your, your mind is pure. Your intentions are good. And you're a benefit to all those around you. That's an awful nice way to end up, I think. Did anybody hear about the tragedy today? Nicole Smith? <laughs> now, you know, it's like the 90s Marilyn Monroe. She died today, 39 years old. Found dead in her hotel room. They oftentimes looked at her as having similar attributes. And what a life she had, you know? She was ups and downs and the best and the worst, and wow. And then at the age of 39, before she even really hit her stride or, or tested her maturity and wisdom, gone. They don't know how yet. They, they're going to do an autopsy tomorrow. But I was thinking, you know, none of us know how much time we have, but, but if we're practicing now, if we're, if we're, if we're looking at ourselves as... Um, at our life as being something that we're creating along the way, if we're looking at our life as a work in progress, if we're not quite sure how it's going to end, but we, there's sure something we can do while we're still doing it, uh, we're lucky. We're, we're really lucky. And, you know, when I, when, I, when I thought about her, you know, she was just really physically desirable. And that sort of gave her all her opportunities. And I oftentimes wonder if, if you're ready for that. If for some reason your genes and chromosomes allow you to be so desirable, if you're ready for all the stuff you're going to be asked to do, and how, how is that going to affect the way you perceive the world and your relationship to it? I'm fortunate. I never had that problem. But, you know, I, I, I feel sorry sometimes for people who are too good-looking, you know, because I'm thinking, wow, the challenges they're going to face, you know? 
And 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 do they, you know, uh, again, my friend Mary at our center, she's an actress model, now in India on a six-month retreat in an ashram. Uh, the camera loves her. She's been in a couple films, and she's been in a lot of print work and stuff. Camera just loves her. And she can put that face on, and she just, you know, glows. But she never does when she's at the center, you know. She's, she dresses down more than I do. And no makeup, old clothes, doesn't like, you know, and she just does that. She doesn't really want to draw any attention to herself. She, because she wants to be accepted for who she is, not what she looks like. And of course, from a Buddhist perspective, that's really difficult because we don't know who we are. So, <laughs> can you accept me for who I am? Well, who are you? <laughs> What's your original essence? <laughs> so I, with those intentions, with those intentions of generosity and compassion and loving kindness, understanding the four truths at a relative and ultimate level, you no longer have a life in the way you used to. You are now, um, you have come to a place of selflessness. And, and that gives you such great freedom and flexibility because there's nothing, there's no reason to define yourself any longer or defend yourself. Any questions? That makes sense, sort of? Anybody sad about Nicole Smith? I was sad. I, I wish she had made it to 50. Yeah, she was with a nurse and a bodyguard, and I don't know if she was with the baby, though. The baby's only six months old, and her son died five months ago. You know? So, I know, I guess five months ago, son must be five. The baby must be five, because it died in the... Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm sure we'll find out. We've watched the news tonight. But you just go, wow, yeah. So, when I, when I see that, when I see how special life is, and how... Easy it is to you know check out, and what little time we have to work on ourselves, and to be of assistance to others, and you know all you got to do is volunteer, and somebody from the OC register might come knocking at your door, saying, "Hey, we'd like to talk to you because it's a slow news day and we need something in our newspapers," you know, and and there you go. Wow. And why would that be the case? Well, because. Uh, you're doing it for altruistic reasons, I guess. Maybe. Did I did I tell you about the immo the immortal chaplains? Maybe not, because I, I went Saturday. I was invited Saturday to go to the Queen Mary and do a benediction, be part of a benediction. There were four of us. And they said, if you come and do the benediction, we'll feed you. And I said, well, okay, I'll go. And then they said, we ordered vegetarian for you, but you have a choice of also chicken and beef. Would you like either one of those instead? And I said, yes, I'd like chicken. Well, couldn't understand why I'd want chicken. And I told her at the dinner because you offered. You know, if, if you had just said you're getting vegetarian, I have to accept what's offered. But if you give me a choice, hey, I'm going for the chicken. 
So we're there, and, and I didn't know anything about these four chaplains. I didn't know what this meant, you know. And I think they're called the Four Immortal Chaplains. It's an organization that's been in existence for like 10, 15 years. It's out of Philadelphia. And what it's about are four chaplains during World War II. And they were on a troop transport ship. And they were torpedoed by a Nazi U-boat. And the ship was going down. 900 men and women on the ship. And the chaplains literally gave their life vest to the man next to them and said, you take this. And as the ship went down, the four chaplains together started to pray with all the other men who didn't have life vests, over 600. And most of them died. All the chaplains died. And because of the selflessness of that action, a stamp was actually produced with their faces on. Two Protestant chaplains, a Catholic chaplain, and a Jewish chaplain went down with the ship, went down with the man. And so I, there I was listening to this, and it was a emotional evening. People were relating stories. They brought the descendants of the chaplains, you know, the surviving family members, even a little baby that had just been born less than a year ago was the great-granddaughter of one of the chaplains. And it was nice, and they all got on stage and, and applause. And then they were honoring somebody. And they honored the actual guy who was in Hotel Rwanda. He was at the table. And the actor who portrayed him was there as well. And they talked about what he did. And then they talked about a Dutch man. And he got an award, too who was an engineer, but heard about the plight of the women in Africa who were refugees, and in order to cook the food, needed to find twigs and roots and pieces of wood. But in this part of Africa, there wasn't any of that. So the women and children had to go out and search for it, and then men would come and rape them and attack them. And so this engineer said, what can we do? And he devised an $8 solar stove, like a little solar panel with a pot in the middle, that the sun now would cook the food and the women and children wouldn't have to go out to find wood. And they didn't have to put themselves in harm's way. And I am sitting there listening to this. Now, I just went for food and to do the benediction. I was feeling pretty good. And then the weight, the suffering, diagrams and charts, pictures of the people in Africa. The, the guy from Hotel Rwanda, he said his life has been in jeopardy twice. Twice people have tried to kill him because of what he did. And, and, and he referred to Martin Luther King Jr. as one of the people he looks up to and gets energy and spirit from. His story and his life. And the thought that came to me was, well, why, why would we have an organization like this? Why would this be going on for such a long time? Why would over 300 people pay money to drive to Long Beach and go on the Queen Mary, which I really like. It's like going back to the 40s, you know. And I wasn't alive in the 40s, well, 49, but, but the wood and the Art Deco lamps, and it just has so much personality and character. Why would all these people be here? And it, 
I think it boils down to the fact that human beings are actually willing to give up their life for an ideal, for something they believe in or understand to be true. And, and we're probably the only creature walking the earth now that's willing to do that, that had that kind of healthy detachment from their own life. And I thought about myself being a chaplain and having not a life vest, but a bulletproof vest. And so we're at a gun, gun battle, you know, and I take off my vest and give it to the man next to me and say, here, you use it. I'll be okay. You know, would I do that? And to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I'll never know until I get to that place and see how strong my practice is and see what kind of understanding I have about life and death at that very moment. But I could project myself as being a hero, you know. Another newspaper story would come out picture in the front page. Or I would be, you know, one of those guys who just... And, and you know what the police department tells us to do if something goes down? If gunshots are fired? They say, find something to hide behind. Because you don't have anything. You do not have mace. You do not have a gun. You do not have a stick. You got your faith. You got to find a tree or behind the door or behind the car. You don't, we don't want you to get killed. And we don't want you to help us because this is police stuff. And you're not trained. You're just going to get in the way. So in my own mind, I'm thinking when we pull a car over or we go into a situation, okay, where, where am I going to hide? What looks good in this situation? What do I need to do to survive? But here we had four chaplains who didn't say that who didn't even think about it, think about that. They just said, man next to me doesn't have a, a vest, you got mine. Wear it in good health. Wow. So I left there with, you know, probably the same feeling most people had when they got there, that we're honoring this part of humanity that has worked on themselves through their spiritual practices, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish, and had come to that place of selflessness, true selflessness, willing to be tested and to pass. Wow, so it is remarkable. Yes? What, for you, what's the, what are the harder areas of uh, selflessness for you? I mean, it seems um, there are so many categories of it, material, possession, yeah. uh, personality, ego, yeah. um, life. I mean, it almost seems that in some ways, and I know it's a little contradictory, but the that the chat, the loss of life, actually, the giving over of your life, may be one of the easier ones. And I know that's dramatic, but you could get kind of, especially if there are four of you. I mean, that that may not be the hardest one. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what the hardest one for me was. I'm getting better, though. The hardest one for me was... Uh, uh, giving presentations and then doing them well and accepting the praise. And, and I would go back to my center, to my little room, and I'd say, wow, look how good I was tonight. 
That is so cool. I'm getting it. I got it down. I can hardly wait to do it again. So I can feel that same kind of applause and appreciation. And and what I started to realize was the fact that uh, I wasn't really doing the presentations the way I thought I was. That um, And anybody who speaks publicly a lot sort of gets this feeling, I think, of channeling. That you're the vehicle. You know, you're the voice. And, and I'm not going to get... Uh, uh, and actors uh, have to go into a character. And... And so it's not new agey. It's just an interesting phenomena, I think, that occurs. If you get out of the way, it still works. And, and then after it's over, you come up and start taking credit for it. And say, wow, look at that, yeah. And what reinforces that are people that want to come up and say, hey, good job. So somebody has to be there to accept their gratitude to accept their generosity. So I've, I've been able to work through that and realize, you know, that's not necessarily me doing that. It's just a process that's occurring. And, and I'm much better if I have a selfless... if I have a selflessness about it rather than uh, being there fully present and taking credit for everything that's said. So when I listen to these recordings... I'm oftentimes listening to them for the first time, which really sounds odd, I know. But, but I, if you're really speaking in the present moment, you're not thinking about how you're speaking or what you're saying, and stuff comes up, and you go, wow, first time I said that. Hey, that was pretty good. I'm going to remember that. You know, so, so it's that kind of thing. So for me, it was ego. And, and Buddhism doesn't give you a break when it comes to ego, because it always says you're not the ego. And a lot of teachers, when they present Buddhism, are very selfless in their presentation. They're, they're modest, and they're quiet, and they're not dramatic at all. And in some traditions, you actually hold a fan in front of your face so they can't see your facial expressions, only hear your voice. Because the Dharma is the most important thing. They don't care about the messenger at all. In my own way of presentation, I find I need to be big. And, and I need to fill a room sometimes. And uh, this is a pretty easy room to fill for me. My ego is that big. If I'm challenged by 1,200 or 2,000 people, that can be really exciting. I can either fail or succeed wonderfully. But this is a huge thing now I have to carry back with me to the center. And sometimes it won't even fit through the door. It's so big. You know? So, I have found that that's one of my skills. I can become really big and fill a room. Sometimes, though, people want one-on-one. They just want to sit down and ask you a couple questions. And I must admit, I'm not good at that. I'm too big. It's hard for me to get small and soft and quiet. I, you know, so can you imagine if you're somebody used to speaking to 1,200 people, now you're speaking to one person, and you're just so dramatic, and your voice is so loud, and you just would, that person would just go nuts being in the room with you because there'd be no place for them. You would take up all their space. So for me, that was very difficult 
part. Another difficult part in the beginning was the idea of ownership. Selfless ownership. And, and what I did is I gave most of my stuff away. You know, because that was the appropriate thing to do. And I was just reading somebody else's uh, a monk's biography. When he became a monk, he gave all his stuff away too. And then about five, ten years into your monkdom, you, you end up with a full room again. You know, it just sort of comes back to you. But now there's like less attachment. You know, and and somebody wants something, you give it to them. You know, like you your precious book collection. Well, you don't need that many, so you start giving them away to people. And it's fine. You know, they can put it to good use. So for me, first it was ego, and then it was possessions. Those were the two most difficult things I found to be selfless about and took a lot of... um, I needed to hear from my teacher a lot about about that because because he would... Dr. Ratnasara would give me really good advice. I can remember when I was on Vibe, and I have a little video file if you're curious about me being on vibe with Sinbad. But I was on the Sinbad show. They, they had seen an article in the paper about my work at Juvenile Hall. And they said, come on down. We want to we wanna interview you on stage, on the show, and we want you to bring your harmonica, and we want you to play with the band, and we're not going to send a limo for you. We want you to ride your motorcycle down. And I'm thinking, why can't they send a limo for me? <laughs> So I rode my motorcycle down, and, they, and I had to ride into the back lot twice because they were filming it, and I didn't take the helmet off fast enough the first time. And then I went in early in the afternoon to practice with the band, but then in the actual show, they said, well, hey, did you bring your harmonica with you? Would you like this, you know? And I had already practiced and knew what I was going to do, but it was more dramatic to have it just sort of like, oh, yeah, I'll play with the band. And so... My teacher, Dr. Ratnasara, I told him I was going to be on. He, he watched it. And the next day, I went. I said, well, how did I do, doctor? Did I do pretty good? Was I animated enough? Did I talk fast enough? Did I say the right things? And he was so quiet. He was just thinking, you know. And I'm pretty sure he was thinking, well, how am I going to calm this guy down? Because he's so high from that stage appearance. Lights, applause, audience, cameras. It was wonderful. He said, you know, the only thing I saw that was might be a problem, when you played the harmonica, your hips moved just a little too much. Maybe next time you could sit down. I said, thank you. That's a good suggestion. I'll sit down next time I play the harmonica with the band. Yeah, so that way I won't have to move, you know. And, and so I'm going, yeah, okay, that was cool. So, now, why did he pick that? Why did he say that? Well... For one thing, uh, monks aren't supposed to play musical instruments because music creates desire. And it creates desire in people listening. If you're playing it well, they want to hear more. And it creates desire in you because if you're playing well, you want to play it more as well. But I think he just wanted to say, okay, you're just a little too far off now. You're a little too far. You're much too enthusiastic for a monk. Bring it back to the middle. Get real, get planted, and it'll be okay. And, of course, how often do those things happen? Well, once in a lifetime, basically. And so I've never been invited back. Of course, the show's not on the air anymore either. 
but I thought it was an interesting challenge, and I my ego rose to the uh, to the situation. I was so big, and I left, and I was just so big. And then I'm riding my motorcycle back to the center. I'm on San Vicente, just turning on to Olympic, and one of the guys from the production of that show said, "Hey, Kusla, good job." Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was, it just—it was something else. And I was high for a couple of weeks. I was high for a couple of weeks, and then it just sort of—and then nobody cared. And thank gosh for that. You know, it's nice to have people around you who don't care whether you fail or succeed, but just that you're there because it keeps you balanced. So those were some of my challenges. My selfless challenges. Still working on it. Do you have some? Do you have? Do you see that selflessness might be um, a good place to go? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I do believe what I said, though, and I know it sounded dramatic, probably about the life-giving. Yeah. But I think that there's such a there's so many there are times like that when when that would you would make that decision, and that would not be the hardest decision to make. Hmm. I mean, well, I can see maybe if you're a parent and have a child and the car is coming and you take the child and throw him out of the way so he won't be hit by the car and then you get it. Bang. And you probably didn't even think about it. You just wanted to keep him out of harm's way. Yeah. That's very selfless. Maybe not as selfless as the chaplains because you have a connection to the kid. It's you. I don't even, I, I, think, I, I think I meant, though, it, in a thoughtful way, not a... Um a way of just reaction. Okay. But I I think that sometimes the drama of the moment might propel you, not against your will, mm-hmm. but um, it's such a dramatic moment, war, shooting, yeah. you know, uh, someone's life, a life vest. I mean, all these moments, they're so unusual yeah. that you might do something that seems objectively, gosh, that would be the hardest thing. Yeah. But I think maybe the hardest thing is not... Uh, maybe it's, it's, the hardest thing is worrying about whether or not the other monks like you. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're, yeah. you're not caring about that. Yeah, like, or how popular are you at the at the at the, at the zendo? You know, are you their favorite monk? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Really? I, I, you're, are, you're are, you, are you the one that they don't like? Yeah. You, uh, that, that are you the least liked yeah. person there? Oh yeah. What a burden. Yeah. Really handle that. What a burden to carry. Yeah. Why doesn't that's anybody? That's probably harder. Well, or it, could, it can be. It that, can that be, can yeah. Be very hard, I suppose. And when you're talking about people rising to the occasion, you know what comes to my mind is uh, Audie Murphy. Remember him? Mm-hmm. World War II, and he was just sort of like a little guy, you know. I mean, but he later became like a cowboy, uh, in a cowboy star in westerns and things. And I understand he had to stand on boxes because he wasn't his leading lady was taller and he wasn't needing to be done. And and yet for some reason. He was put into war in a particular situation and rose beyond anybody's idea of what he would do. Yeah. So maybe the time and place does have a lot to say about how we respond to it or react to it. And maybe just living every day without the drama. Well, no, the little things are hard. Those they are. are hard. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy being a human being. And I just I think it comes down to that. Yeah.
Anybody else? Anybody, anything to share about this? Okay. Well, we've gone past our break time. Why don't we take like five or ten minutes, and then when we come back, we'll talk about how to take everything I've said, instead of not take me with you, but take everything I've said, <laughs> out into the world. How to set up a practice, what you need to do to do that, uh, uh, and and any questions you might have. You know, because you've been listening to me now, this is the fifth week. Unbelievable. You know, that's so cool for me. I'm so happy to be here. But that's a lot of words you've been pounded in your eardrums. And so if you have anything that just confuses you or makes you, you know, just a little uncomfortable, it'd be nice to share that with me so I could either clear it up or validate your concerns. You know? Okay, ten minutes. Let's, okay. Well, that's it. That was Class 5, Part 1 of a series of talks I gave at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 07. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free e-books on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>